Sea to sky. Somehow I'm dry through this typhoon-esque bit of weather that we've had over the past week or so, considering that the majority of the meteorologists ended up just describing the weather that was hanging overhead of the west coast for the past couple of days as something akin to an atmospheric river hanging above us and completely giving us nothing but torrential downpour for several days on end with no end in sight. I mean, I was supposed to go play hockey at one of the rinks over the weekend, but unfortunately, the both the parking lot as well as the majority of the innards of the rink were completely and utterly flooded, so they ended up canceling the game. So I could do nothing but sit inside and catch up on the handful of shows that I was interested in going through and talking about this week. So it left me nothing to do but finally finish off catching up on this week's episode's topic, Cowboy Bebop. But before we get to that, I guess a few... Well, to be fair, it's just I remember seeing these announcements and ads probably just even more than two weeks ago, even though there are just few and far in between. There's not really a lot going through this week in terms of notable release dates or just anything through. Honestly, the most negative part is that Karakawa, who is possibly the largest uh, distributor of books and publications inside Japan, they want Isekai to take over the world. And I really don't know what to say about that, considering that the majority of the time that they're actually trying to put forward is going to be trying to press the majority of this genre to not only the domestic Japanese market, but to the worldwide market as well. And at this point in time, considering that the majority of the isekais that I have only enjoyed are either in the 80s and 90s when the idea was relatively fresh, or the last time I ever remember enjoying anything to that degree would have been with Konosuba, Everything else has been completely and utterly oversaturated, overdone, and have brought absolutely no new ideas to the table, or at least no notable ideas outside of giving somebody a smartphone to take to a medieval fantasy, or legitimately walking through and having just the absolute largest base stats in the game, because apparently fantasy always has to be revolving around video games instead of going all the way back to where the classics were actually being able to begin and actually giving us a decent fantasy world rather than just mining it off of other forms of media and video games. But only time will tell. The, <laughs> the fact that they're legitimately now thinking that Overseas First is no longer going to be a slogan to them, but something that they are going to be actively working towards, makes me concerned because I don't think this trend is going to be disappearing anytime soon with essentially Japan's largest book publisher trying to like force this trend to continue and get more and more dense but light at the same time, considering that there's just only so many ideas that you can repeat verbatim on end before people can actually start getting sick of it. But considering that for 2022, they're planning on 40 anime productions to be released next year just so they can cash in on that part of the market is still kind of fucking ridiculous. Like 10 isekai shows a season. And it's only going to go up from there. Christ. But then besides that, only the two notable ones and release dates that I was able to get my hands on would have definitely been the fact that Black Lotus is going to be premiering in Canada. Effectively, you know, now. <laughs> it's, well, more like three days ago, considering that it was finally able to come out on Crunchyroll. And it takes place in the world of the aftermath in terms of Blade Runner Blackout 2022, which is a short that essentially Shinichiro Watanabe also directed himself. So a little bit of a connection there, I mean, not too bad. And I guess at some point I'll jump to it, but it's not necessarily high on my priority list, considering that there are still a handful of pieces of media that are going to be popping up by the end of November, as well as in December, that have definitely... Taken more of my interest as of late. And I'm pretty sure, I already said this two weeks ago, but I guess just to reiterate, it's just that Degretzko's fourth season is going to be premiering on Netflix on December 16th, so just watch out for that, considering that it's a legitimately something that wasn't really a favorite of mine, but to be fair, it's something more up my alley in terms of the workplace comedy in the workplace, which is possibly going to be turning into a romance, but I'm, I don't know, only time will tell. Legitimately curious to see how that's going to be uh, lining up throughout the Christmas season, but uh, only time will tell. We'll just have to wait and see. So over the past two weeks or so, with a little bit of inspiration from the live-action Cowboy Bebop Netflix series that is going to be coming, I believe, this Friday on November 19th, 
it got me um, interested to just go back, considering that the first time I ever ended up watching Cowboy Bebop in my relationship with the series was more along the fact that it was just a glowing recommendation from the entire anime community, and it was something that everybody should enjoy and experience at least once just to kind of dip their toes into the medium for some anime that isn't really anime. It is something unique in of itself and its own genre, in a way, as the show self-proclaims. And so I watched it back in 2013, I believe, about eight years ago, and it was definitely an interesting way for me to jump back into it, considering that it's probably going to be under the limelight come next week for good and bad reasons, I can only imagine. And I was just kind of curious to see how the show ended up holding up over the past several years, since that even though I did already consume it once, I do remember enjoying it quite a bit, that it was so entirely different from the majority of the shows that I had been going through, and it was definitely something wholly unique in its own genre, its own style, its own music, its own characters, its own backgrounds, and its own story structure. Considering that the majority of the series is kind of episodic, and I understand that that could be a turnoff for some people, and more interesting to others, but it's kind of interesting in its structure where it's 26 episodes long and a movie that takes place in between episodes 22 and 23, I believe. And it's got about five episodes of a concurrent running plot and the other 21 are basically standalone stories. But to be fair, this was definitely a series that even though I was able to go back and re-experience it and give it a rewatch and kind of feel like there's more enough for me to talk about, there it wasn't really as much as I thought, considering that all... Everything remained very much the same. I still enjoyed it. I still think it's a great show, and I still think, like I said before, everybody should experience it at least once. But what ended up getting me more interested is essentially the backgrounds, the, pr the production, how essentially this show was made, and of course, the many amazing players that ended up creating such a symphony that they were able to go in such a unique time and place during that set of the industry. So at least to begin, in particular, this was a series that came out in 1998, and it was produced by Bandai Visual and Sunrise, considering that Watsunabe was approached initially just to kind of see what exactly he wanted to do uh, and come up with an original story. And considering that Bandai, the original company that was going to produce the entire thing, just said, as long as there were spaceships in your work, you could do whatever you, you wanted. And I think he definitely took that liberty all the way to the razor's edge, considering that the initial, you know, storyboards and ideas were so dark that the larger uh, semblance, Bandai, just kind of shoved it away for a couple of months and didn't want anything to do with the project until their sister company, Bandai Visual, came up and filled in the rest of the slack, and they ended up getting Sunrise to reduce the series, and the rest was history. And so in this case, the original concept was done by a pseudonym under the name Hajime Yatate, which was mostly just an amalgamation of characters and people from the Sunrise animation staff, since they entirely created this series as a collaborative effort, and even though the series director Shinichiro Watanabe is definitely the name that is most associated with this series, it's definitely notable to kind of like bring that up, because even though he was the chief director, he's kind of a showrunner in the western sense, considering that he storyboarded, directed, and wrote a handful of the episodes, including a lot of the episodes that were written were done by a ha good handful of people inside of Watanabe's state inside of Sunrise and as a whole. But I guess going back to The Man of Note, Shinichiro Watanabe did end up getting his start at Sunrise throughout the majority of the late 80s and early 90s inside the anime industry as a storyboard and episode director for a handful of their shows, considering that he was able to do some Gundam prod projects, including Stardust Memory, as well as go through and work on the majority of the episodes of the television series Escaflone, which... Of course, going back to the isekai genre, this is possibly one of the better ones that I've seen, and just is miles ahead of the vast majority of isekai shows that are coming up now to date. And it definitely gets a glowing recommendation because of just how gorgeous it is portrayed and drawn inside of the series, so I would definitely recommend giving Escaflone a watch. And so the first time he was able to land a directing gig inside of Sunrise was doing a co-direction on the project for the Macross Plus OVAs, and that was his first collaboration as well with composer Yoko Kano, who we'll get to in a minute. But essentially, he was able to go through and rise the ranks and essentially just show his kind of style and how well he was able to articulate and translate the majority of the ideas that was brought forward to him, and 
get them on the screen to such a miraculous degree that he was definitely being taken of note inside of the 90s. And so he finally ended up getting his first solo directorial gig in Cowboy Bebop. And so before I get to Cowboy Bebop, I guess I also wanted to note on a handful of shows that Shinichiro Watanabe ended up doing previously, as well as the works that he ended up doing past Cowboy Bebop leading into the 2000s, considering that he did do a handful of uh, stuff for Macross and Gundam, as well as Escaflone and a handful of other OVAs that were lined up in the 90s, but past Cowboy Bebop leading into the 2000s, his next directorial gig was Samurai Champloo, which honestly is also a fantastic glowing recommendation that would be a great addition to anybody's collection, considering that the music, the style, uh, the dramatic like pieces and set pieces that everybody was able to go through and animate to the best of their ability, it's an incredibly fun show. A little wonky and a little raunchy at times, but to be fair, like Samurai Champloo, especially the soundtrack that they were able to go with Force of Nature, Nujibes, and a collaborational rap effort for the majority of the people that they ended up bringing into the production, it is also something that definitely needs to be at least experienced. And if not, honestly, go listen to Nujibes' tracks out on Spotify, considering that a lot of his albums that were used inside of Samurai Champloo definitely deserve a listen on their own. And so in between 2004 and 2012, he ended up doing a handful of shorts as well in terms of the Animatrix, which I still haven't got around to watching, which I should actually uh, get to at some point. Um, but he did direct two of the Animatrix shorts, which were Detective Story and Kid Story, as well as doing a handful of shorts for the Genius Party OVAs that were put out in 2007. But he didn't end up fully directing another televised anime series until Kids on the Slope in 2012, which, once again a collaboration with Yoko Kano, and then once again, the music being the absolute standout of one of his works. Like, this man knows how to direct series, especially directing composers, to be able to give every series that he works on such a distinct identity and such a beautifully composed set and soundtrack to add to every single one of his works. And Kids on the Slope is honestly... I'm trying to remember. I think I did watch it back in 2013, so... Kind of the same deal. I, it was definitely my first year of university, but the only time that I ever tend to bring out Kids on the Slope soundtrack and when I end up listening to it on my own is definitely, it, it kind of fits in with the winter aesthetic. I really love walking around to like the slow and the smooth jazz and the atmosphere that it kind of, you know, gives off. And there's not as much snow, at least down here in the lower mainland around the Pacific coast near Vancouver. But to be fair... It really helps with the ambiance when there's snow, but to be fair, I need to stop being to be fair. So to be fair, the cold breeze and the ambiance of the winter really does kind of lend to the soundtrack since a good handful of the episodes in this series are also Christmas-based. But to be fair, it also does give a recommendation. There's honestly every single one of Watanabe's works I can definitely give a recommendation to for various reasons, but the common through line that every single one of them have is definitely considering that their soundtracks are absolutely immaculate and lend so much to the vibe of each series. And then getting to one of his most interesting collaborative works would have been his like chief and overrunning uh, series directorial set of Space Dandy. And so this was a bone show that ended up coming out in 2014, but it was unique in the sense that just because Watanabe was the chief director, he was more overlooking the majority of the production and giving complete directorial freedom to any of the writers and producers and people who were able to give their own ideas and wanted to kind of like give their own unique flair and give themselves an opportunity to get experience directing these kinds of one-off short stories and get themselves into the medium. And so you had his major co-director, Shingo Natsume, who is of One Punch Man fame, or at least One Punch Man season one. And the most recent thing that he was able to do with Madhouse was Sunny Boy. And then on top of that, one of the episodes was directed by possibly my favorite director, Masaki Yuasa, who is, of course, under the fame of Devilman Crybaby, the Tatami Galaxy, and one of his more experimental works, Kaiba. And then you have different directors like Ichiro Kochi, who ended up doing the majority of Code Geass, as he is the main creative set of that story, and then Daisato, who ended up doing two different works of complete opposite ends of the spectrum, where one, he wrote for Ergo Proxy, and then ended up doing the writing chops for Words Bubble Up Like Soda Pop, another very recent and well-colorized work that came out this year. 
And Space Dandy is like the quintessential episodic series, considering that I would imagine there's only like three episodes in total, like the first episode, the somewhere in the middle, and then the final episode are the only ones that have any kind of overarching plot, very much like Cowboy Bebop. But it's an incredibly fun set to watch. And the only negative part about Space Dandy, I find, is that because it's episodic, there are going to be a few episodes that are completely abysmal and uninteresting and something that doesn't necessarily grab people. But there's always something that somebody will be able to find and enjoy out of Space Dandy. And for me, it was definitely the first and final episodes who ended up having the majority of their key animation done by a man named Yutaka Nakamura, who I will get to in a bit. But it was an incredibly fun ride, and I do think that it was an incredibly interesting project to go through. Also being possibly the first anime to be uh, broadcasted in its English dub before the Japanese dub was put out. And, like, that, I definitely remember that being an interesting bit, like, back in 2014, considering that that was the first time it had ever happened. Uh, but I digress. In that same year, he ended up putting out another series that he had a sole uh, directorial and creative chops on, which was Terran Resonance. And so this was an animated series that I believe was 11 episodes long and possibly has, like, some of the best initial and starting episodes of, like, any series I'd seen. Like, the first five to six episodes were absolutely insane in terms of build-up, in terms of execution, in terms of, like, directorial style and momentum, and especially how the soundtrack was utilized with Yoko Kano once again returning to his side, and just the Nordic sort of just ambiance and music. Like, I'm looking through the majority of this work, and, like, for shows that have such a long-standing bit, and Terran Resonance, even though the ending did fall flat, I honestly think that it might be Watanabe's, like, best soundtrack collaboration with Yoko Kano. Like, it is really up there. I would definitely recommend, like, going, if you're not going to watch the series, which is kind of like a bit of a... It's, it's, it's like a very shaky recommendation because it starts off very strong, but it does end up teetering towards uh, the end of the series. But if there's anything that you would like to go and check out about Terran Resonance, I would definitely recommend the soundtrack. And then he wouldn't necessarily get a directorial shop for another five years, or at least an anime, until the Netflix release of Carol and Tuesday. And Carol and Tuesday, once again, is a musical collaboration between him and Yoko Kano, but this time a same deal kind of like Samurai Champloo, with so many other people and so many other artists coming in to co collaborate with the majority of the works that were coming through, where a lot of it did kind of focus on both pop and uh, folk music, which I definitely appreciated, especially a lot of the acoustic and piano melodies that came through between the titular uh, characters, Carol and Tuesday. And it was kind of one of those things where overall it was a good time, I would say, but I still think that the biggest selling of this was definitely the music where I'm probably never going to jump back into Carol and Tuesday, but I jump back into the soundtrack so often so because I've been floating her name around quite a bit, I guess we'll talk a bit about Yoko Kano first before getting into the rest of the series, considering that it's definitely her influence as well as the jazz collective known as the Seatbelts that a lot of this musical influence definitely gets derived from. A lot of smooth jazz, a lot of renditions and free play sessions all taking place in space. And it's definitely thanks to her that a lot of the identity from this series is able to derive from, considering that she had such a good relationship and collaborative effort going between her and Watanabe. But at least for her in particular, she did start making music in middle and high school way back when. She's been doing this for decades now. And she was very directed and ended up acquiring many awards throughout the majority of her tenure as a student. And her career ended up getting kickstarted, considering that she ended up doing a handful of video game soundtracks in the beginning, but the one that essentially got her a lot of notoriety was through the video game series Nobunaga's Ambition in the late 80s. And so she was able to kind of like get her foot into just the musical composing industry thanks to those handful of successes. And like I said before, the first time she ever collaborated with Shinichiro Watanabe was on the Macross Plus OVA, that she was able to go with him back in the 90s. And so... She ended up making a really good first impression with Watanabe on that soundtrack, and that was probably one of the main reasons why he was able to ask her to come on and do the majority of the composing for Cowboy Bebop. 
Half of the soundtrack was put to sheet and composed like any other soundtrack would, but then the other half was mostly freeform jazz with a lot of the Seatbelt Collective coming in doing kind of their own thing to kind of give this unique audio aesthetic to the majority of the soundtrack. And at least after this, Kano was able to do other animated series as well in terms of Wolf's Reign, Macross Frontier, Darker Than Black, and Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So it was great to kind of see how the majority of these different pieces were able to coalesce into such a great and enigmatic piece that, thankfully, in Watanabe's own words, would last for 10, 20, 30 years to come, and here we are. So now that I've covered at least the handful of the pr- production and the directorial, the composing, a lot of the production aspects, this is going to be the... Uh, one where I end up just talking about the series as well as the movie as a whole. And if you don't want to be spoiled, if you want to go in completely blind, this is definitely where I would recommend stop listening and kind of going to find your own way and figuring out if this show is right for you or not. Because for the rest of this, I'm not necessarily going to be going episode by episode or piece by piece, but definitely noting on the events and the things that I definitely remember the most from the series that were the most enigmatic and some that changed in perspective or the last several years in between my two watches of it. So I'm trying to think off of the first episode, I'd say it's a really strong starter. Like it has a really good introductory episode. It gives you the feel, it gives you the tone, it sets up the majority of what this series is going to be and what exactly you're supposed to be expecting in terms of bounty hunters, in terms of a lot of violence, some comical, some legitimately serious. It does a really good job setting itself up to the story that it's going to try to tell somewhere along the line, but also give more than enough room for the world to be incredibly diverse and open for that time it's going to go through the majority of its episodic runs. Except I will admit that probably my least favorite episode of the series is the second episode, where it's basically just the introduction to Ayn, who's the corgi data dog, but just kind of like the villain, the setup, the execution, like how it's kind of like played out is just really awkward and not something that would really like bring somebody into the series and not come back to the promise that the first episode gave. So it was like really iffy. And there wasn't necessarily much that um, I was able to get out of that. So the other few that I don't necessarily have any strong feelings toward, but were definitely something that I felt like I had to skip through and rush because there wasn't necessarily anything here. I mean, the gateway shuffle with the monkey vaccine, the majority, actually not the majority, all of Jet's episodes, which in this case would be Ganymede Elegy, Black Dog Serenade, and Boogie Woogie Fun Shui, it never really gave me, like, something that turned me off. It was just something that happened, and it was definitely the episodic pieces that didn't necessarily give too much more to the series as a whole. And even though Oogie Boogie Fun Shui was definitely possibly the most hated episode for the general consensus, I still do think that the adventures that at least Jed is able to go on with this daughter of a friend of his besides the relationship that the series just tries to push towards, and it's like, okay, why? There's no reason for that. I don't know. There wasn't necessarily much to go through and outline in any kind of positive light, but the fact that the majority of this series and the majority of their episodes are so well-knit and so well-put together, on top of the fact that through how much that quality was able to stay consistent, especially in the back half, um, was definitely exceptional, to say the least. Honestly, both Faye Valentine and Edward's introductory episodes were like both standouts all in their own right. If Ayn's considering that he's a dog, doesn't necessarily get the opportunity to be as more of an interesting cast member. But yeah, no, just everything around was just top notch. But I guess in like a small like character description, Spike Spiegel, who is technically our main protagonist... He's definitely, he was a former syndicate member that ended up getting out, and now he's chasing bounties, and there's always a woman that he's looking for in terms of Julia. He's very laid back, very mellow. Sometimes he can be a bit of an idiot, but the majority of his fighting style comes out of Bruce Lee, NG Kundo. And then his partner, Jet Black, is a former ISSP, or just a former cop, just to say the least and make it simple. And he is the one that runs the ship, he's the one that keeps everybody together, he's definitely a bit of a father figure, but he's the one that kind of, like, leads everybody towards the next bounty. Also, he has a badass metal arm on his right arm. 
Ein the Dog is a data dog, but he's incredibly cute. Not as much info comes out of his episode in particular, and he's just a really cute companion to bring out for the rest of the crew. Faye Valentine, like, is a just a completely rambunctious and hot-headed femme fatale that is very reminiscent of either Bond villains or villainesses, or in this case for me, the one that she shares the most DNA with is definitely Fujiko Mine, which is also probably my favorite femme fatale in the anime universe, but to be fair, that does give her a lot of props. She has a large amount of debt, and she also has a gambling addition, which doesn't necessarily help, and she kind of just complains through the majority of the episodes that she's in, until we're finally able to have a couple of episodes that ends up giving her a bit more character and a bit more nuance as we uncover her past. And besides that, Edward is a really exceptional hacker who does a really good job at a lot of the computer and the geeky stuff going around. She's an enigmatic ball of energy. Her and Ayn have a really, like, cute dynamic and a lot of fun chemistry going between them, and it's really a joy to kind of see them on screen. And the majority of the episodes that follow them are, like, really chill or completely ecstatic and brimming with energy. So it's kind of interesting to, to see how they bounce back and forth between the majority of the situations that they've been put in. And then besides that, I guess a handful of the episodic ones that kind of come to mind... Like, Sympathy for the Devil, where Spike and Jet have to chase this, like, really, you know, crass and disturbing young boy who turns out to be, like, several decades older than he actually is. Heavy Metal Queen, where it's just this rockin' trucker gal, and Spike has to beat up a bunch of drunkards inside of a bar while he's completely hungover, and I absolutely love to see him getting pissed and going through the rest of it. And the relationship that he forms between him and the gal that she ends up meeting through the majority of the events here is definitely like a fun one to see there. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was fun. The one where Edward basically just gets into a chess match with uh, just several decade old, like uh, old programmer that ended up like helping through the majority of the hyperspace gate toll booths that he helped construct, but ended up forming a plot at the first hardware update 50 years later now that man is planning in advance mushroom samba was absolutely fucking hilarious considering that the majority of the crew just get high on shrooms and we just see ein and ed chase after this drug runner through the majority of like a uh, black exploitation like film-esque style that the episode decides to take it's incredibly fun wild horses has a lot of amazing set pieces especially with a fucking like jet siphon and uh, old space shuttle so that was absolutely nuts Piero LeFou, or Requiem for a Clown, is also a really interesting, like, if they're, like, it, it's a pretty good Halloween episode, too, and I watched it, like, around the 31st, and so it's just, like, such a really well-set tone piece that is incredibly unsettling and incredibly disturbing, and possibly the best standalone episode inside of the entire series, like, it is really good. And probably the runner-up to that one would definitely be Cowboy Funk, like, just kind of seeing Spike's doppelganger, who's incredible, like, who's more of an idiot than Spike is, but Spike can, like, just can be completely, like, taken in by his energy at times. And the fact that how much he resembles him just pisses him off even more, so they continuously, like, stop going after the bounties that they've been set to follow, and they just, like, fight each other instead, so it was just, like... A really interesting and, like, fun episode to go through. Um, I would say the biggest two episodes that I had a positive change on over the past couple of years would have definitely been uh, phase episodes, which were Speak Like a Child and Brain Scratch. No, it's not Brain Scratch, Hard Luck Woman. And it's like, yeah, Speak Like a Child in particular, considering I had no fucking idea what a beta was, a beta tape was eight years ago. It was kind of like, isn't that just a VHS? It's like, oh no, there's there was something different. There was something before the age of VHS because that was like the first like form of media that I ended up watching a lot of my cartoons from when I was a kid. And it's like there was something other than VHS tapes. There were tapes that were small, that were thicker but thinner and smaller in the majority of the degrees. It's like wow. Um, that and Laserdisc. Poor Laserdisc. The fact that it had such a limited runtime before, like, the CD and the VHS and the majority of just storage mediums ended up, like, evolving at a much faster rate. It was definitely a bit of a tragedy to kind of, like, not know that existed until several years after the fact. Just getting back to the episode, the fact that 
somehow, even after like Faye's long extended cryosleep of about 50 years, I believe, she ends up finally getting a beta cassette player. The boys go out and in search of one, but they bring back a VHS. And then as well, a beta cassette player like ends up showing up to their estate as well, which is kind of one of the only like reasons like, wait, that... So not only did Young Faye or Young Faye's family like have the foresight to send mail this tape off to themselves, but then also uh, like send off a beta cassette player as well. But to be fair, like going back, it definitely seemed like Faye's parents were definitely in the upper echelon. They were definitely a little richer, so understandably that they were able to get uh, that kind of technology and just like send it off from place to place. But definitely a scene that hit me harder than I remember it doing earlier. Um, would have definitely been the scene where they finally get together and watch the tape, this mystery thing that has been circling the galaxy for decades now, and it ends up being an old videotape of Faye when she was a kid. And just going through and seeing how warm her smile was and just how much of a like positive force she was as a kid in comparison to like the very just out of it and nihilistic version of what Faye is now was like such a different, <laughs> it definitely hit different for sure. And the fact that this warm version of herself is something that she can't even remember that all of her memories before the accident, all of them before she ended up putting into cryogenic sleep, they were all gone. And the fact that she can't remember this version of herself where she was just so carefree and so happy was just kind of like, that's like really sad and really tragic. And leading into episode 24, Hard Luck Woman, where not only does Edward and Ayn leave the crew, but Faye finally gets all of her memories back leading up to the accident that happened to put her into cryosleep. And the fact that there's nothing left for her at home. Like, maybe she had a past, and now that it's finally come back, she would be able to have the opportunity to go back, start anew, find somebody, anybody that, like, brought her back to the past that she used to have. And the only thing that's left is a girl that she barely even knew, somebody who was in her graduating class. But considering that she was just so familiar, the fact that she was able to recognize her at all was because she hadn't changed a day in the past 50-odd years that she had been asleep and then out wandering the world as a bounty hunter. And also, honestly, like, the sunsets following Ed and Ayn's departure, as well as Faye basically trying to carve out the one piece that used to be her bedroom in the old foundations of her home that are long gone, like, those sunset shots are absolutely gorgeous. Like, I would love to have that as a background and love to incorporate that in any, like, form of media like i really hope like a really good sunset shot is coming in through the live action cowboy bebop because it would be remiss to not see anything like that beautiful like related to the original series and so the rest of them leave the ship and leading into the finale but i guess i did kind of get ahead of myself because the, before the finale even before episode 24 where everybody leaves there is an episode that happens between 22 and 23 and not necessarily an episode but a story that is known as cowboy bebop knocking on heaven's door which was a film that ended up coming out three years later out in 2001 and so it's possibly one of the better stories that uh like came out of cowboy bebop it's kind of the same deal it was made by the collective of people over at sunrise who ended up like doing the majority of the heavy lifting and trying to recreate the story and give it a bit of extra life out in the cinemas but the film is like drop dead gorgeous the backgrounds the action set pieces the characters the dynamics the environments the city life basically everybody that moves and all of the events that take place inside of this film are just so well detailed and like perfect and astounding like it is possibly one of the best like films i've seen that is associated with any of its like series like a television like a straight to vhs movie or like anything related to that regard it's like a fucking stand like fantastic standalone movie because technically it does happen in between a handful of the episodes and that's kind of what I did. I ended up watching this between 22 and 23 and going through just to kind of like keep things out on pace and to keep things in chronological order for this rewatch. But it was really good, especially the hand-to-hand -hand fights between Spike and Vincent throughout the entirety of this film, which is animated by um, a well-known animator that has been going through and has made their staple recently as a bones specialist as of late for a handful of their shows and that's Yutaka Nakamura 
or in this case, Utapon, as he's known. So Utapon is possibly my favorite <laughs> animator because it's just so easy to recognize their style whenever a cut of theirs like goes on screen and it's just every single time they animate a cut that stretches on between like 30 to 60 seconds it's just some of the most mind-blowing pieces of animation that you've ever seen they were the, kind of the first animator that i started like looking towards where it's like oh that's a cool cut wait it looks very similar to this other one from another show it, it shares a lot of themes, it shares a lot of stylistic similarities, so why is that the case? It's like, oh, well, of course, it's drawn by this same person. It was definitely something that started, like, getting me into, like, figuring that out, like, through Sakagaboru, uh, like, through specific shots and through specific animators on figuring out what essentially they want to do and how essentially they want to do it in a unique, uh, specific way. It was, like, really cool to kind of, like, bring that into the fold of the, um, different productions and it definitely, like, started to get me through, especially just through Bones in particular, because even though Yutaka Nakamura has done different cuts for different studios, especially in his early days, now it's like every time that there is a series done by Studio Bones, he's on that shit. Since he did a handful of cuts for FMA and the Brotherhood remake, he did a handful of cuts for Soul Leader, he did the most notable cuts personally, for, like, Kekai Sensen. The first time I'd ever seen a clip of Kekai Sensen, which is also, like, a really fun, uh, like, same deal, episodic, uh, like, spur-of-the-week show um, that's based in New York, but with aliens. Like, I definitely recommend everybody go and give that a watch because it's an animation powerhouse and it's an incredibly fun and endearing show. The majority of it is done through action. And the first clip I ever saw of Kekai Sensen was put on the anime subreddit, and it was... Zap's first fight with an enemy alien with a sword that regenerates. You see the streaks and the stretch lines and the action and the impact frames and just everything that happened in that 30 second cut, uh, 20 to 30 second cut, was immaculate from start to finish. Like, absolutely insane. Just go, if there's anything that I can do for you, go up go look up a Yutaka Nakamura, like, MAD or a animation showcase on YouTube, and you'll see what I mean. Like, this... They're fucking ridiculous whenever it comes to any of the cuts that they animate. They did cuts for Mob Psycho 100, and they did cuts for Escaflone, for Metabots. There were a handful of cuts that they did for Space Dandy, especially the one with the Lady of Liberty, or Lady Liberty. Like, it's been so long since... <laughs> I, I, I've completely forgotten her name. But there is an animation cut with Lady Liberty, and it is possibly the most ridiculous, but off-the-wall and dynamic and fantastic cut inside of the entirety of Space Dandy. He also ended up doing... I believe he did part of the first fight in the first episode of One Punch Man, and then he did the most notable part of the fight in the final episode against Boros. When you start going back and forth, you'll kind of see the similarities and like kind of like how they dictate a fight whether it's it has a very highly detailed background or one that's incredibly simple they try and do it in a way that maximizes line mileage and like makes things simple so in particular they call these things utapon cubes and if you look at any kind of debris that utapon puts inside of his cuts all his, de all his debris is uniform. They're, they're like cubes. They're just squares, rectangular prisms, like very, very, very simple shapes that in reality, stuff would never break that way. But in anime, that completely dissociates itself from reality most of the time, you can definitely get away with it. And on top of that, it makes their life so much easier when they don't have to individually uh, map out and draw like every single tiny piece and degree because the dynamic action set pieces that Yutaka Nakamura puts in the majority of his cuts has a lot of debris and it's a, and it's incredibly heavy-handed and like there's so much force being put into the majority of his impact frames that it's like of course there's going to be debris of course there's going to be some form of carnage that follows in the wake of the majority of the fights that he decides to animate in particular the one that I recognize every single time he's on screen now is of course with My Hero Academia Yutaka Nakamura is in charge and responsible for possibly the best cut in every single season of My Hero Academia, and the best cut in every single My Hero Academia movie that comes out. So it's like All Might's fight with the Nomu in season one, Todoroki's fight with Deku in season two, the escape, or Bakugo's escape in season three, Deku vs. Overhaul in season four, and then he did two cuts, I believe, for season five. One was 
uh, the extended reciprocal burst. And towards the end of it, um, he did a very brief part of um, Shigaraki's fight at the end of the season. But it's just seeing how they're able to dynamically impact a scene just with their involvement is like a testament to like how good they are as an artist. And it's just absolutely ridiculous to see like the different uh, scenes and the different like pieces of chaos that he's able to like put to pen. Like, um, and then I guess I'll, I'll note like it's the, the final fight with uh, Deku and All Might at the first movie, the fight of Deku and Bakugo versus the main villain in the second movie. And then Deku's final attack against the third's, uh, the third movie's villain, which really, really, really put me on edge. Like, I was edging for the Yudapon shot the entire uh, third of My Hero Academia film because I know that at some point in time, he's going to get a cut and he's going to animate it. Like, they always give him at least one cut every 12 episodes in My Hero Academia, and they always give him one cut um, in every My Hero Academia film. And the fact that they waited until, like, the last five to ten minutes of the third film for him to finally get his cut in, I was like, yes, there it is! There's, 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 there's a Utapon. Like, absolutely fucking insane. <laughs> like, what they're able to accomplish with the little time that they have in any project that they're a part of, it's just absolutely amazing to see. And so in particular, like... The stuff that happens, especially in, uh, jumping back to Cowboy Bebop, in the, in Knocking on Heaven's Door, in the film, like, he did every single fight, uh, between Spike and Vincent. Martial arts were incredibly fluid, the dynamics and the punches and the blood and the sweat and the smoke and the wind and the rain and just everything coalescing between all those fights. Every single time, like, those two come into contact on screen, you know, like, an amazing couple of seconds are going to follow because their fights are just so well choreographed and so well put together. It's just absolutely insane to see what Nakamura is able to accomplish with just the amount of time he's given. And so, like, he also did cuts for the first episode. He did cuts for Ballad of Fallen Angels, which is the first plot-driven uh, episode revolving around Spike in episode five. He did... A lot of good cuts for Honky Tonk Woman in episode 24, and then for both of the final episodes, Real Folk Blues for episodes 25 and 26. Oh, well, yeah, I guess, and then, as well as, like, um, the fights at the very beginning of Pierre Fu, as well as his, like, completely and utterly ridiculous fight with Cowboy Andy, like, in episode 22, I believe. Like, everything that Nakamura did inside of this series was, like, impressive to say the least and Shinichiro Watanabe like consistently like sung the praises of this man and like there is no like like is there any higher like offer or award to like be completely and utterly like praised and accepted by like this man it's absolutely insane but yeah it's for the final so for the five episodes that were mostly spike driven and focusing on his past and his major story with his relationship with the syndicate and how that goes, I'm trying to think because all five episodes are stellar. I personally enjoy five and uh, so episode five and then 25, 26 a little more because the biggest thing that I got out of episodes 12 and 13 Jupiter Jazz were definitely the music because Gren, who is a saxophone player in this two-parter makes to me the most iconic uh pieces of music inside of Cowboy Bebop like my favorite easy is Julia's Lullaby and it's done with nothing but a saxophone and a piano inside of this bar and it's a smaller part of a gr of a greater larger track called Space Lion but just the melody and the tune uh that they named inside of the series in of itself like, just those two, I would wholeheartedly give a recommendation to, like, go listen to that. Because it's not even two minutes long, but what it's able to accomplish in that short amount of time was just nothing short of stellar. And then I guess leading up to episodes 25 and 26, like, it is a fantastic foregone conclusion. Which the only, like, negative things that I've heard anybody say about is that, sure, Julia ends up dying, but she's... We don't really get as much time with her over the season over the season to actually like figure out like how well her dynamic with Spike is. Like we only see her in mentioned in fleeting moments. 
She's only giving passing lines and then just, you know, passing like images in episodes five and episodes 12 and 13. Um, but she only has like less than five minutes of screen time with Spike and then she passes away. And it's like, we're tragic. I feel tragic for Spike and sad for his loss, but we don't really feel as much connection to Julia as it is only through Spike, which is kind of like the only negative thing that I would ever have to say about it. But just like all the fights, all the wrap-ups, all of just the send-offs and conclusions and the like wave goodbyes to all the characters between each other is just, it's still like, it sucks. Like it sucks in the best way possible. Like it's the fact that it still feels so inevitable and such a foregone conclusion, especially after Julia's death is like, this is the only way it can happen. Like there's no other possible outcome for Spike now that he feels like he's lost the only piece of himself that he could ever get back. And now it's gone forever. And while I still do enjoy the moments that happen in episode five, uh, with Ballad of Fallen Angels, especially like the introduction to Vicious and Spike's relationship and how they their inevitable foregone conclusion at the top of the tower at the end of the final episode goes, and the fact that the only nice and positive thing that Vicious ever does in this entire fucking show is slide Spike his gun as they both do the only... Like, that's the only honorable thing that Vicious has ever done in this entire series, which is hand Spike his gun back as Spike, like, hands his sword back. And it's, like, such a amazing standoff between the two of them as well as like the send-off to the series in of itself and it sucks to see him go but what spike and what cowboy bebop was able to accomplish in the time that they had in such a unique and enigmatic circumstance with the amount of freedom that was normally never given inside of the anime industry at least not until evangelion because i do think that if evangelion didn't exist then that wouldn't have give given any kind of idea to the producers to be like, oh, maybe we should take a bit of a risk. Maybe we should allow people to like make a, something original every once in a while. And it doesn't have to be like a proponent for toys or marketable material or just novels and books and for the rest of it. Like maybe the medium of animation can do a lot of good work as long as they can give more than enough freedom and enough time for the directors and the producers and the people a part of the production to actually spread their wings and do the stuff that they like were meant to do and the stuff that they were passionate for. But yeah, it's definitely changed a lot over the past 25 years since the release. Well, 23, I guess. Getting close to 25. Getting close. And in a couple of days from now, we'll finally be able to see the live-action adaptation that people had been incredibly interested in over the past couple of years, but some who are dreading considering that at least to, at this point in time, there hasn't been a single good, positive live-action anime adaptation to date. Still not possible. I still don't think it's happened. But I do think that now that I have tempered expectations for the live-action show that's going to be coming out soon, in that I don't really care too much about like how good it is. It can be troubling especially with the people who grew up on this, because I never watched this when it... Like, I was definitely, like, way too young to enjoy the original Cowboy Bebop series. Like, I haven't... It hasn't necessarily been, like, a part of my life for a very long time, and I've only recently, like, came back to it over the past eight years, where it's been lying pretty dormant on my list and pretty dormant inside of my mind. So I don't have as much of a personal connection to it as a lot of other people do. Which is kind of why I'm concerned about how people are going to respond. And I know there's going to be backlash. I know that there are going to be a lot of people where it's like, why would you try this in the first place? Why would you even try to stand up and get outside of the shadow of this work that is such a classic and so well-renowned towards everybody inside of the anime community and everybody outside of it too? And they would ask, why would you even try? And it's like, eh, you know what? I still think it's fine. Especially with Cowboy Bebop being such an episodic series that it is. Me having no expectations leading into this adaptation, like leading into this kind of series, the only thing that I hope, the only thing that I would like to see out of this live action series is do something new with it. Like Cowboy Bebop, even though it is so set in stone with its tone, with its style, with its music, with its characters, the vast majority of its stories are episodic and standalone. You have this opportunity, now that you have the rights to do this series live, 
do something new. Bring something new to the table. Because regardless of how good this adaptation is, the original is always going to be there. Which is why I still don't get the majority of the loathing and the hate that a lot of people let go through these adaptations where it's like, okay, you didn't like it. Doesn't mean the original series gets any worse. Doesn't mean you can't go back to it every now and again to kind of like relive and re in to rejoice and kind of like reinvigorize the spirit of the series. Because to me, as long as they do something new and bring something new to the table for everybody else to enjoy, and that's honestly all I can ask for. At the very worst, it gets people to watch this. Netflix is going to sell this. They've got the rights to the Cowboy Bebop series. Like, you can watch the original movie and the original television series on Netflix now. Like, Netflix is going to sell this show, and it is going to bring this show to light to so many new people who have the opportunity to go and experience this for the first time. And to me, that's the most important part about this kind of adaptation. That even though it's probably not going to be as good as the original, uh, even though it's not going to be able to stand outside of its own shadow, it will still, at the very least, bring so many new eyes and so many new people to this series that is well-beloved and well-enjoyed by people around the world over. And that's what I'm really interested to kind of see how that plays out over the next few weeks. And that's probably going to be my next episode in uh, a couple of weeks' time, where I'll probably go through and kind of see how the adaptation fares and kind of figure it out. I'm probably going to like uh, do like a group watch with a couple of people, so I'm really interested to kind of see how that goes and kind of see like what the reactions are to not only those like me who have seen the original series, but I'm really interested to see a reaction of a buddy of mine who has never before like even heard or like gone through, even though he's a really big like film nut, he loves noir, he loves jazz, he loves like everything related to the series. So the reactions and what new emotions and new perspectives that this adaptation is going to bring to the table, that is what I'm excited about.